These stones, alas, these gray stones, are they all, all of the famed and the colossal left by the corrosive hours to fate and me? Not all, the echoes answer me, not all. Prophetic sounds and loud arise forever from us and from all ruin unto the wise as melody from Memnon to the sun. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about stones that sing. And we'll sing the praises of stones that talk and sing. That's right. And uh, we started things off here with an excerpt from Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Colosseum, which directly mentions the Colossi of Memnon, which, uh, which is the, the, the prime thing we're going to be talking about today. These, these two statues, these two stone uh, colossi, uh, one toppled and then... Uh, rebuilt, and then another that still stands the test of time. And uh, one of them, uh, the toppled Colossus, is said to have emitted sounds, uh, at least in ancient times. I love the idea that Poe says all ruins must sing, really. Yeah. Because they kind of do. Ruins are, why do we love ruins so much? We actually talked about this in another episode recently. Uh, They seem to suggest something about the folly of human civilization yeah, I mean, which <laughs> that that's of course uh, uh, brings us to, to Shelley's Ozymandias, which mm-hmm. uh, it is said was also at least partially inspired by these particular ruins. Right. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Yeah. Which uh, which takes on a meaning different than the king originally meant, right? So he's saying, look on my works, ye mighty in despair, and you would despair because he's so powerful and he's going to bash your head in if mm-hmm. you resist him. But of course, we should look on his works in despair because now there's not much left except the lone and level sands stretching far away. Yeah, we cannot help but be enthralled by ancient ruins. And the thing is, this was true in ancient times as well. Because during classical antiquity, uh, tourists, such as uh, tourists uh, from throughout the Roman Empire, uh, would visit uh, the ruins of Thebes in Egypt, uh, which was already ancient even in their time. This is something we've touched on before about ancient Egypt. It's kind of like that fact about dinosaurs where, you know, more Mm -hmm. time separates like the Stegosaurus from the Tyrannosaurus Rex than separates us from the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah. Uh, If you were to go back to ancient Rome— there was stuff from ancient Egypt that was older to them than ancient Rome is old to us. Yeah, it's, it's mind-boggling to think about, isn't it? That uh, these people who are ancient to us, they gaze back in time at an, at an even more ancient people that were just as ancient to them. Yeah. I mean, on the scale of Egyptian civilization, ancient Rome is fairly modern. Yeah. Right down to the disrespectful tourist graffiti, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because the the Roman tourists, when they would they would come out and they would look at the the two stone colossi or the the syringes as they would also call them, they would uh, make little notes on the the base of the the fallen colossus, uh, describing uh, what they saw and or heard, uh, maybe even who they were and when they visited. It was kind of like a an ancient uh, TripAdvisor page. Yeah, yeah, uh, and we can talk more about those inscriptions later because they tell us interesting things about the history of the statue or the statues and how people experience them. But so what what are these colossi, the colossi of Memnon that we're going to be focusing today? Primarily, they are what remains of the great temple of Amenophis III or Amenhotep III, who was a pharaoh of Egypt in the 14th century BCE. That's right. And there's, a, there's at least one level of misinterpretation that gets thrown on top of, uh, of these ruins, as we'll discuss. But why we're talking about them today, I mean, obviously, we love any chance to talk about ancient ruins and, and, uh, and, and olden times. But the, there's a mystery. There's a mystery here, yes. And that, the mystery here is that for a period of time, uh, mere centuries, really, in the, the longer uh, lifespan of these, uh, these two statues, they were said to speak or to emit sounds uh, that is often described as uh, like the cracking, uh, the breaking of a lyre's string. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes people allude to it as more of a voice, but everyone seemed to view these more or less as some sort of a, a, a natural phenomenon that was taking place. I've read it described as a harp or as a twang or as a breaking string. Uh, so yeah, very interesting. Why? Now, that that would be different 
if we were reading reports from the ancient world that people went to say a statue of a ruin of a statue in ancient Egypt and that it told them what to do, right? Right, it gave it was some them, sort of an oracle, right? Then we would start to think, okay, these people may be listening to, I don't know, wind sweeping over the sand and think they hear something. There may be a bit of pareidolia going on there, auditory pareidolia, mm-hmm. or they might just be hallucinating. But no, these are sounds that are described as sort of mechanical sounds, and they're described in a very lucid way that seems to indicate there really was probably some sound coming out of this statue. We're not just getting like embellished stories of people having a rapturous experience. Yeah, there's a sense that this is a curiosity, that this is, um, you know, it's, it's like, oh, these, this statue is emitting a sound and it's the darndest thing. It's not a matter of the, the gods are speaking through it, uh, at least not in a literal sense, though, though, though some uh, uh, historians do may have some fun with the sort of uh, mythological ramifications of this. Right. That gets laid on it. But there is enough reporting of the straightforward character of the sound that it does seem like these statues probably just made some sort of sound. So what was the sound? Uh, that's what we're going to be exploring today. And we are going to be referring to a couple of key resources, Right. That's right. So the the first, and I'd say really the, the main uh, source uh, here is Miracle of Memnon. This is by G.W. Bowersock, published in the Bulletin of the American Society of Papyrologists, 1984. And then we also refer to uh, Memnon, the vocal statue by Massimo Pettorino, published in the International Phonetic Association. That one's a little more conspiratorial, but we can get into yeah. that later. But yeah, before we get into the theories about the sound, the origin of the sound, we should talk about the origin of the Colossi themselves. Like we said, there are these two great statues, and we mentioned they were built by this pharaoh, Amenophis or Amenhotep III. That's right. He was a powerful ruler, and it's, it's said that his excess served as a catalyst for the cultural revolution that, uh, that followed him, posed by his son and successor, Akhenaten, uh, who uh, many of you might remember. He's best remembered for abandoning the uh, polytheistic religion of the past in favor of the monotheistic worship of the sun disk, Aten. And then, of course, after, after his death, uh, the worship of Aten was, uh, was then abandoned in favor of the polytheistic model that was previously established. Yeah, I, I don't think his model quite caught on. Right. But you know, sometimes you got to rebel against uh, your, uh, your your parental units and uh, and make a statement. Here's a question, just generally: Do you think it's harder to by force impose monotheism on a polytheistic culture, or by force impose polytheism on a monotheistic culture? Hmm. Well, you would think. I mean, just off off the hip, I would say that it would be easier to impose uh, monotheism on polytheism. Seems but, like it's gone that way more often. Yeah, but I mean, clearly it didn't. It didn't take in this case. Uh, granted, there's more in play here than merely uh, uh, getting a bunch of people into a, a room and just sort of testing their opinions on uh, different uh, um, uh, models of, uh, of religion. Right. Uh, but it, I mean, basically, on, on one hand, you could you would be making an argument that say, "Hey, actually, this one God you all believe in. Well, actually, there are many different uh, avatars of this God, and I can see that working." And then the other argument is, hey, all these gods that you believe in, well, actually, they're one god, and you're just looking at different uh, faces of the one true being or something to that effect. Right. So if you're a king like Akhenaten and you want to impose a new paradigm for the religious views of your country, there's a lot of theological wiggle room for you to play with. It's not just like stop believing in that, believe in this now. Yeah. I mean, if, if, you, if you do it right. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, uh, but anyway, like we said, this change did not really take – uh, but 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 let's get back to uh, Amenhotep the uh, third. Again, he was a powerful ruler. He made powerful statements in the way that ancient Egyptian rulers did: made statues, made temples, created these works of stone. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, when you look at the rulers of the ancient world building all these monuments, you know, to their own glory and to themselves, it can look kind of ostentatious to us. But another, and I mean, it probably would be fair to say it is kind of ostentatious. Mm-hmm. But on the other side. People have pointed out that the rule of Amenhotep III was a period of like cultural flowering in Egypt where it was sort of like the peak of artistic achievement in ancient Egypt. Yeah. So you, you can see why Aten wouldn't really take off, right? Because everybody was probably in love with the, with the, with the, with the previous uh, ruler and the world he'd created. So it was kind of a golden age. 
Right, and part of that golden age is the design of this temple for Amenhotep III on the west side of the Nile around Thebes, and this is now the temple where these these statues are what's left, these statues now known as the Colossi of Memnon. Now, of course, they're not statues of Memnon. We'll get into who Memnon is in a Mm -hmm. minute. They are statues of the pharaoh Amenhotep III, right? That's right. So let's let's describe them a little bit. The the landing page for this episode is stufftoblowyourmind.com should feature a, a prominent image, uh, two, if I can make it work. Uh, but, uh, but there are plenty of uh, paintings, illustrations, and photographs uh, of these statues. So each one is roughly 16 meters high or 52 feet, uh, and uh, they are both represent seated humans with large heads. But there are, there's a key difference between the two. So the southern or left statue this one survives as a single block of sandstone. This statue, though clearly ancient, is still in one piece. Mm-hmm. But then the northern or right statue, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, from the waist upward, uh, if you look at it today, it's been hastily restored with rough stone cuttings topped with the original head. Yeah, it looks like it fell apart from the waist up and then somebody put it back together with just like some blocks and then stuck a head on it. Right. I've actually seen video and one of the funny things about it is because it has this block construction now, there are all these gaps in it. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen videos of mod- of people visiting these statues in modern times and there will be birds living in the Colossi of Memnon, in the the statue that's broken, the right oh, wow. statue. Uh, so it's got these gaps in it, and birds are just nesting in them and flying in and out all the time. It's pretty funny. Now, in earlier times, the top half would have been just toppled ruins uh, with the head and other pieces uh, strewn out uh, on the ground beside it. Mm-hmm. And we mentioned all that ancient graffiti on them. Right, yeah. The legs here uh, on the the toppled statue uh, are inscribed with ancient graffiti. 107 texts, uh, but I've also read 108. Uh, Basically, it gets into a a, a sort of a contest of determining how many you can actually decipher and and point out as individual inscriptions. Mm -hmm. 61 of them are in Greek. So roughly 45 of them are in Latin, and there's apparently one that's a, a bilingual inscription. Mm-hmm. And these uh, inscriptions are from the first uh, 300 years of the Common Era, and they were inscribed by ancient tourists. And these would have been tourists of the Roman Empire, or at least of the Roman Imperial period. Yeah, I can often see tourists going to ancient landmarks today and think that it's kind of gross, like the, the behavior they display, you know, do, doing the selfies and all that. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to criticize selfies too much, but... You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. at least selfies don't damage the, you know, the physical structure. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So people, you know, tourists in the ancient world were actually much worse than we are today. They, they were trying to take pieces off of things and writing their name on things all the time. Yeah. That it's was pretty what, brutal. It's, it is. But, but as we'll discuss, it did seem to take a while to get going. Uh-huh. It's in, it, they didn't necessarily seem to be in the regular practice of doing this sort of thing. Though, of course, there are plenty of examples of graffiti uh, from the Roman Empire. So it's not like someone in, invented graffiti at this point. But uh, <laughs> it, certainly the graffiti on Memnon uh, picks up uh, over time. Now, uh, the, the interesting thing, again, is that we can look at these inscriptions, though, and, and, and gain intel about what they saw when they visited it. Right. So did they say, I came here in whatever year, the reign of Caesar, whatever, and aliens were helping build structures over here? <laughs> well, no, not, no nothing on, on that scale. But they would give uh, you know, a time, uh, their name. Uh, and then the inscriptions also, they, they give us an idea of what state the statue was in. They mention that the northern statue is mi- missing its upper half. And they also identified the statue as a likeness of the Greek mythological figure, Ethiopian king, and uh, Homeric hero, Memnon. Right. So this is how we get to the classical name of the statue, the Colossi of Memnon, even though it's not supposed to be statues of Memnon. Yeah. So who was this Memnon in Greek myth? Well, he was actually supposed to be the son of Eos, the goddess of dawn, and Tithonus, a Trojan prince. And in this classic legend... Eos, the goddess, falls in love with this mortal man, Tithonus, but she realizes, uh uh-oh, he's a mortal man, he's going to die one day, and she weeps because that would be so horrible. Mm -hmm. And she moves Zeus with her tears, and Zeus very unfortunately grants Tithonus the gift of eternal life 
but without the accompanying gift of eternal youth. Ah, yes. That is a that is a bad stew. But before the situation gets too bad, and it does get real bad, the two of them have a son. So the goddess of dawn, Eos, and the the, uh, the now immortal former man, Tithonus, they have a son, Memnon, who is the king of the Ethiopians. And he comes to fight in the Trojan War only to get killed by Achilles and then granted immortality by Zeus again because of the tears of his mother, Eos. Well, first of all, if you're going to die in the Iliad or, or or in the Trojan War in general, uh, being slain by Achilles, not a bad way to go. A lot of people went that way. Yeah. I, I was looking this up just for fun. Uh, so if uh, if you look at just the Iliad and you just look at, at uh, named characters that are killed within the Iliad, then Achilles has a kill count of about 24, 24 confirmed kills. And, uh, of named characters. Right, right. And, and that's, that's pretty good. Uh, I do have to point out uh, that uh, Patroclus, uh, Achilles' uh, friend or possible lover, depending on the interpretation, and uh, Odysseus, our hero, they both have high kill counts as well. And Odysseus's kill count is actually higher, as one might expect, given uh, that he's kind of the star. Odysseus is sneaky. He's yeah. cunning. So the, the ancient Roman tourists, they referred to this, these statues as, uh, as Memnon. They associated them with this figure of Memnon. Right, because there was a there was a strong influence of Hellenistic culture throughout the Roman Empire, and much it, it was often referred to in many ways as sort of like the Greek world or the Greek speaking world, even while Rome was in power. Right, and then they they also had other ideas about the the, the history of the statue. For instance, they attributed it they attributed it, its partial destruction to the invasion of uh, Cambyses the second of the Achaemenid or first Persian Empire. As to what actually caused the destruction, we can revisit that in a bit. Right, right. Now, uh, but the most important thing, really, for our purposes here is, again, not that they just said who they were or when they visited uh, these statues. It doesn't matter what they called them, how they misinterpreted the past. It's about the sounds that they described. Again, the the the, the sound of a, a breaking of a lyre string, a, a vocal sound, or even a, a crackle. And I, I do have to say, it does play nicely into this idea of Memnon, though, right? Because Memnon's mother is the dawn, and so many of these in, in inscriptions, or certainly the historical texts that refer to it, they they te- they say when you're supposed to hear the crackle or the sound. It occurs at dawn. It so there's this kind of communication between the sun and this statue of uh, uh, allegedly uh, Memnon. Yeah, that that was one of the ancient interpretations. Was mm-hmm. that dawn would break, Eos would come over the horizon and shine her light onto this western statue mm-hmm. on the western side of the Nile, and then of course the son of Eos, Memnon, would sing to his mother. Yeah, uh, but of course he's broken, so it just comes out as a <laughs> kind of a crackle, right? Uh, because and it plays into this idea too of this this fallen thing, this thing that was once great that is now reduced. Uh, but these are, of course, all just sort of uh, flavorful uh, interpretations based upon the fact that it was making or seemed to have been making some sort of sound. All right. Well, I think maybe we should take a quick break. And when we come back, we can discuss ancient descriptions of the sound the statue made and then get into what could have caused it. All right. We're back. So let's discuss uh, the singing in a bit more detail here. So okay. Bowersock writes that the inscription tells us that, quote, often as the sun rose at dawn, the surviving part of the Colossus would emit a mysterious twanging sound that seemed to all who heard it unearthly and unforgettable. It seemed as if the God himself were speaking in some way, that he should be speaking from the waist down, seemed not to cause any particular problem among the viewers, (laughs) and he did not oblige unfailingly every morning. Some visitors, including the imperial retinue with Hadrian, had to wait for the miracle to occur. Yeah, supposedly they went there to hear it, and then it didn't happen the first day, so they had to wait around for a while. And I think he touches on two details that are very telling here. Uh, one, that a famous person comes to view it and they have to wait, mm-hmm. which does make it sound like it was it was indeed some sort of natural phenomenon that could not be depended upon and you just had to be patient with it no matter how powerful you were. And then also the fact that it seems like if you were making the story up, it would be the head of the statue that's right there 
they would be speaking, right. not essentially like the legs and uh, and groin region of the uh, of the broken titan. Right. I mean, there is a certain kind of symbolic joy you could get from the idea of a god statue with a talking pelvis, but it, it just doesn't seem like uh, that's what they'd really be producing if this was, say, a band of priests attempting to uh, to, to trick people into thinking a statue made a sound. Which is something that some people have proposed. Yeah, you see, the, as we'll discuss, you see this uh, this drift in the narrative uh, as you deal with like second and third hand accounts, where they basically tweak it. Where like, hey, it'd really be a better story if it was the head speaking, yeah. etc. Okay, so Bowersock at the time he was writing summarizes what was generally thought about the production of the sound in the ancient statue, right? Yes, and he was uh, he was also referring to some of the writings of Philostrus who would have lived uh, around you know, roughly 170 through 247 CE. But uh, he, he points out that, that, that we can be fairly sure that uh, what toppled this statue was an earthquake that we know occurred in, in 26 BCE. Mm-hmm. We have other historical accounts that reference the earthquake. So everything lines up there. But then uh, as, as far as the earthquake damage goes, this is, uh, uh, this is the idea that, uh, that Bowersock touches on. Quote, the earthquake damage evidently allowed air to penetrate well inside the Colossus in such a way that the sudden warmth of the sun at dawn affected a noisy discrepancy between the quickly heated exterior and the still cool channels within. The sounding Colossus was a great tourist attraction under the Roman Empire. The Greeks of that age identified it with the mythical hero Memnon at the end of the 2nd century AD. Septimius Severus repaired the statue, it is alleged, and thereby silenced it. So in this, he touches on two really important facts here. First of all, a longstanding theory as to how this sound was emerging from mm-hmm. the toppled uh, uh, Colossus. That, and, it, that it only started after the earthquake damage. Oh, that it only started after the earthquake damage, yes. And then it ended after the restoration of the statue. So you got this window, yeah. this window of the talking statue. It didn't talk before and it didn't talk after. Right. It doesn't talk now. If you visit it now, nobody is hearing a sound from this, uh, this stone. So clearly something happened to it. We're pretty sure it was earthquake damage. And it caused the stone to, to speak, if you will, uh, on particular mornings when conditions were just right. And then someone came along and restored it and therefore caused the phenomenon to, uh, to cease forever. So this particular summation, uh, Bowersock writes, popped up in virtually every modern mention of the Colossi. And likewise, uh, they, they, these, uh, these different uh, modern interpretations leaned extensively on the writings of French archaeologist Jean-Anton Lautron, who lived 1787 through 1848. Uh, and he supported the Severus hypothesis for the silencing of the Colossus. But Bowersock points out that all we really know is that Severus visited the Colossi in 199 CE. Uh, 4th century St. Jerome uh, did back up the notion that the sounds had ceased based on his visit, uh, but the, the curious thing here is he assumed that it had stopped at the birth of Christ because Christ had essentially put an end to all this pagan nonsense. Now, wait a minute. That sort of throws the timeline off, right? Because right. We, we, we're supposed to have it making sounds well into the 2nd century, right? Mm-hmm. Or the 2nd century CE. Uh, so that would kind of not line up with the birth of Christ, but right. Well, basically, I guess sh- we're not positing that as a real explanation. For no, no, no. Stuff. So this is an account, and I mean, this is a case of someone showing up and saying, well, "This thing's not making a sound anymore. It must have stopped at some point. Eh, probably when Jesus was born, right? Because why would why would there be any kind of like pagan weird magic stuff going on under this new covenant, right? Uh, now, but ultimately, he had no intel to go on there and was not bothering to read the TripAdvisor reviews on the legs. <laughs> right. It's like now the, the Pharaoh's uh, magicians can no longer do miracles themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's ultimately kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but it's, uh, he's one of the, the, the many famous visitors. So uh, you see this uh, pop up in various writings about the Colossi. Yeah. And most importantly, as, as Bowersock points out, it does attest that by a certain point, nobody was hearing these sounds anymore. Right. But it also becomes difficult to really judge when it stopped based on the, uh, the end of the inscriptions because it's likely they simply ran out of room to record it on the statue's legs. The oh, statues man. are that covered with inscriptions. But that being said, we can still look at the dated uh, inscriptions on the statue and try and figure out when they stopped. And uh, previously, the last dated text used to be uh, held as uh, 196 CE, 
which certainly does line up with this idea that uh, that Severus visited in 199 CE. Mm-hmm. But later, as Bowersock writes, an inscription from 205 CE was noted, and there's another superimposed over that. Uh, so Bowersock says, quote, it therefore becomes quite impossible to imagine that the sound was terminated in 199 by Severus. So people were still reporting hearing the sound after Severus visited. Right. Now, the earliest known description of the singing is from the geographer Strabo in 24 BCE, and he described this, the scene as everyone else did, with one statue partially destroyed by an earthquake. Uh-huh. Because this led many to assume that a known, again, known and recorded earthquake from 26 BCE would have been the culprit in toppling uh, one of the colossi. Though Bowersock, he he adds that that Strabo is being a bit vague uh, if he's describing an earthquake that occurred two years ago. Uh-huh. Uh, but he admits that based uh, based on the evidence, it seems that the sound was, quote, exclusively a phenomenon of the Roman imperial world. Uh-huh. So we, we still have a, a pretty solid time frame that we can look to in which this this uh, this statue was generating a noise. Specifically, it was sometime after 26 BCE and stopping somewhere around the end of the second century CE. Yes. Okay, well, about 225 years of a singing statue isn't bad. Yeah, yeah. And during that time, you have a lot of people visiting it, a lot of people then writing about it. Uh, and then people writing about those writings or writing about other people's interpretations of it. Strabo himself wrote about it in the the first century BCE. And uh, then you had uh, Bassanius come around and he wrote about it in the mid-second century CE. And these two voices alone helped to make it famous. Yeah, so Pausanias was a Greek geographer. He wrote about places all over the Mediterranean world. And so here's uh, his piece on this from the translation by Bostock and Riley. Quote, The Colossus in Egypt made me marvel far more than anything else. In Egyptian Thebes, on crossing the Nile to the so-called pipes, I saw a statue still sitting which gave out a sound. The many call it Memnon, who they say from Ethiopia overran Egypt and as far as Susa. The Thebans, however, say that it is a statue not of Memnon, but of a native named Faminoff, and I have heard some say that it is Sesostris. The statue was broken in two by Cambyses. At the present day, from head to middle, it is thrown down, but the rest is seated, and every day at the rising of the sun it makes a noise, and the sound one could best liken to that of a harp or lyre when a string has been broken. I like that. Uh, I really like that. But Mm -hmm. the the interesting thing is that there is quite a bit of this. There are a a lot of different... Uh, writings from the period that that retell this story. Some of them are firsthand, and some of them have dubious descriptions of its state of disrepair or or the details about the sound that clearly indicate that this was at least a second-hand uh, description, if not a third-hand description mm-hmm. of of the phenomenon that was taking place. And then sometimes they're, uh, some of the writers just having fun with it. For instance, uh, Lucian, uh, uh, the writer, joked about uh, the statue speaking to him through its mouth. Wouldn't it have been funnier, though, for the statue to speak to him through its pelvis? Yes, through through the butt. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you, you, we could only wonder, you know, what uh, versions of, uh, of Memnon-inspired dirty jokes, et cetera, or body humor uh, was, was passed about during the ancient world. I mean, clearly people... It did have a sense of humor in these times. People were more or less like they are today in many respects. So uh, <laughs> there, there were probably um, ridiculous jokes about Memnon speaking through its bottom. Uh-huh. And of course, plenty of uh, individuals just had some uh, took some poetic license with Memnon as well. For instance, uh, Roman poet uh, Juvenal uh, wrote that the sound was the voice of a melancholy god upset over the destruction uh, that was uh, that was uh, wrought against it. This time by Cambyses, who, who again uh, was the destroyer in uh, many of the common. Uh, tales about the statue. Right. Not the earthquake that we later found out was probably the real cause. Right. Now, to come back again to this idea that uh, that Severus restored it, uh, Bowersock points out that there is ultimately no evidence that this took place. Uh, now, Severus certainly visited the area and he could have visited the Colossi. I mean, it certainly it's lines up. It's not like saying Charlemagne appeared and fixed the statue. Right. Um, but he didn't leave any graffiti for what for what that's worth. But there also could have been very little space for him to to inscribe it at that point. Anyway, 
But by the fourth century, it certainly was a silent statue again, by all accounts. And uh, and here we encounter commentators like Jerome, who believe that well, it just it must have been silent for a long time. Um, or, for instance, we also have uh, uh, one commentator, Ammianus Marcellinus, for instance, who knew the Colossi, but didn't seem to know the story of the sound. So we see like details of the phenomenon beginning to pass out of common knowledge and out of common circulation. Mm-hmm. Someone, it, it, be, it stopped being the statue that speaks, and it became the statue that used to speak, if you knew the stories. And Bowersock goes on, he admits that while we don't have any real proof, again, that Severus ended the sound by restoring the statue, we, we still have to figure out who might have restored it and then conceivably shut down the sound because that does seem the best, based on the timeline, that does seem to be what happened. Somebody restored this statue. Somebody messed with the, with the remnants of the statue and in doing so ended the sound. Yeah, they they put a hand on the drum head, essentially. Yeah, yeah, basically. Uh, And Bowersock has a little pet theory about this, right? Yeah, he presents Queen Zenobia of Palmyra uh, as a possible uh, culprit here. Uh, So she led an Arabian army into the region um, during this period. And uh, during her occupation of Egypt, she presented herself as a new Cleopatra. So she championed uh, the Egyptian greatness of old, and, uh, and and did so as a like you know as a swipe at Roman imperialism. You know uh-huh. this is not the the country of the Romans. This is the country of the uh, the, the noble Egyptians, and I am one of you. And Bowersock proposes that Zenobia and her son may have carried out several restoration projects uh, in the area. That would make sense if she's trying to ingratiate herself with the locals. Yeah. So it ultimately makes more sense than Severus because you can at least begin to. Uh, in this again, it's a pet theory, uh, but it it at least involves more reasoning as to why this is taking place. Okay, well, I think we should take a, another quick break, and when we come back, we will discuss what could have made a statue make noises like uh, like was reported for so many years. All right, we're back. Now we're discussing what could have caused the Colossi of Memnon, the, the especially the one toppled statue, to make sounds as people reported at dawn for so many years. And so to look at that, I was like, okay, are there other cases where stones appear to sing or make noises? There are actually plenty of examples of things that are called singing stones, but what that tends to refer to is that they sing when struck. And that doesn't exactly fit the description of what's going on, right? So there's one study from 2014 I came across in Time and Mind by Paul Devereaux and John Wozencroft. uh, And this was about the role that sound may have played in the selection of the huge stones at Stonehenge. Now, you've probably read that, you know, the blue stones, these huge stones at Stonehenge were moved over great distance to their final location. They weren't just dug up out of the ground and then placed where they are. Why would you go through the effort of moving huge, gigantic stones so far? And the paper is a report on a project surveying one site of uh, a supposed source of the stones and asking, quote, what might Stone Age eyes and ears have perceived in this landscape and what aspects made it become important to the builders of Stonehenge? So uh, one factor that they come up with is that stones from this site and geologically similar sites nearby seem to produce a, a tone, a ring, when struck with a hammer. It's not just the dull thud you'd get from a lot of stones, but but a more distinctive tonal kind of ringing. And they say, you know, if, if this is a religious site, this could have been a selection criterion. It seems intuitively hingy, right, that you'd want the stones to kind of ring and sing when you bang on them. Yeah. But but again, clear, clearly this is not what's going on with the Colossi of Memnon. Uh, no, nobody's talking about striking the base of the toppled strat statue and producing a noise. Yeah, and so th- there are other stones like this around the world, but it all, always seems to be the same story, that there are locations in the world with singing stones or stones that ring, but it tends to be when you hit them together with one another. And I've read about this a good bit. It seems to be that there is, it's hypothesized that there's something about the internal mineral structure of these stones where there, there are certain types of strain relationships between the minerals within them that produce this elastic f- effect that makes the stones more like a drum that kind of rings and less like a thudding regular stone. But 
that's not apparently what's going on. We're not talking about people banging on it with a hammer. We're saying the light of dawn comes in and then it twangs. Yeah. Now, likewise, I have read before various arguments about the um, the sacred aspects of caves for ancient peoples, mm-hmm. uh, in which if, obviously if you're in the cave and you make a sound, uh, that sound will be echoed and there could be various supernatural interpretations of that. Uh, but again, clearly that's with a cave, not with just a large statue. You can shout at a statue all you want. Uh, and there may be some uh, reverberation of uh, of your sound waves, but but not to to any like real practical extent. And that's not what people are describing. Right. Yeah, they're not they're not hitting it. They're not shouting at it. They're showing up. The sun is rising, and then there is this distinct crackle. And of course, that leads us back to that heated air argument that we've already um, discussed. Uh, and this really this really seems to be the one that most people are focusing on. This seems to be. It, it, curiously, it is a, is a case where where ancient minds pretty much figured it out, and nobody really has a more um, effective answer. Yes. Yeah, so this is as put by Bowersock. Just to refresh you, Bowersock writes that quote earthquake damage evidently allowed air to penetrate well inside the Colossus in such a way that the sudden warmth of the sun at dawn affected a noisy discrepancy between the quickly heated exterior and the still cool channels within. Now, I kind of wish we could have more detail on exactly what's going on there, but this does seem to be what most people are referring to. There's some kind of version of this. There's some heating difference, a difference in heat potential from the outside and the inside, and there are certain kind of cracks or channels within the stones that cause it to make some shifting, adjusting kind of sound. Yeah. Now, I know what you're, you're all thinking. You're thinking, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Joe and Robert seem on board with it. Uh, is there anybody that, that has a problem with this interpretation? And there is. So earlier we mentioned uh, the article from uh, the International Phonetic Association, Mimnon, the vocal statue by Massimo Petterino. And uh, Petterino does have a problem with this. <laughs> he says, quote, The main objection against this kind of hypothesis is that the other colossus, which stands still intact, made of the same material... Having the same size and shape has always been silent. If the environmental conditions were exactly the same, why weren't there any microfractures of the sandstone on both? Furthermore, this hypothesis cannot explain why, after the restoration, the block formed by the pedestal and the legs has stopped talking. Therefore, this hypothesis leaves many questions unanswered. Uh, I, I don't really follow that reasoning there because yeah. so like he's ignoring the possibility that Right, the earthquake damage or whatever caused the damage is what contributed to that one particular statue making the noise and the idea that restoration changed the load, changed the strain, changed the pressure on the rock and that affected what sounds it could make. Yeah, I mean it's – I don't really follow the argument either because it's kind of like saying, well, you have these two twins. Why does one have a broken arm and the other doesn't? Well, because one twin fell out of a treehouse and the other did not. Uh-huh. One of the one of the colossi toppled due to an earthquake and then the argument is, of course, that it, it causes sort of microfractures necessary for this phenomenon to emerge. The other does not meet that criteria. Yeah, I mean, so the heated air or the channels within explanation, I think, is a generally reasonable sounding explanation. Though I do, uh, to take Petarino's side for a minute, I do wish there was a little bit more detail, like we could get more detail on exactly how that works. Yeah, yeah, I I agree. Now, uh, even though I do not agree, however, with many of uh, uh, Petarino's arguments here, I do think they're they're worth looking at because mm-hmm. he is kind of – at the very least, he's a devil's advocate here okay. uh, because not only does he uh, have problems with the the established hypothesis, he has an alternate hypothesis. He suggests that the sound might have been the result of an artificial device uh, that was uh, positioned uh, either uh, in the uh, the head of the statue or kind of like stuck up in one of the, the nooks and crannies. Uh, involving mirrors that conveyed the sun's rays onto a set of metal levers. Dilation due to, uh, uh, due to heating then would uh, make them hit stone keys and produce sound. And he sources this as well to a, uh, an 1829 uh, uh, French paper, uh, but I, I was not able to really follow his, um, his sourcing. Uh, right. So perhaps this is, this is based in a more uh, elaborate argument, but 
from the occult sciences. Right, right. But basically, I do I do have a lot of problems with this because it does seem like a far less elegant uh, solution to say that instead of it being a naturally occurring phenomenon that has a, a definite start and stop date based on damage or restoration to the statue, it instead requires a device and a plot and maintenance of the of the device uh, over the course of at, at you know two to three centuries. Now he's not the only person to suggest that trickery was involved, right? Uh, this is actually sort of an ancient meme that maybe what the sound was was some priest class, some priesthood that was dedicated to always tricking people into thinking that the statue made a sound. I don't think we have any way to rule that out. Though Pedrino gets very specific in what he thinks they might have done, right? You know, having yes. these like thermally activated technological devices within the statue itself. Another way you could you could get that kind of effect uh, without going to quite such technological and specific lengths is to say uh, there was a priest hiding behind the statue who would strike it with the with a hammer, right? You know. Now, now even Pedrino he he even admits that one of the problems with this is that. Uh, is that if it was a device, then why would the statue need to be destroyed to produce the sound? So even he, he admits that that is a potential hole in the plot here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then also why would the Egyptians presumably have installed it to begin with? But but he also gets into another interesting area here. Uh, part of his uh, criticism of the uh, the phenomenon is that he doesn't think it would have really been that much of a phenomenon. That people are, seem to have gone crazy for the Colossi of Memnon and this curious sound that it's making. But he argues that if it was indeed a, just a cracking sound emerging from stones, that this was happening elsewhere in the world and would not have been seen as a big deal. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe – so maybe this is a normal natural phenomenon. It doesn't occur all that often, but – Lots of people just haven't heard it. This is the only one they've heard. I mean, how often have you heard a stone singing? It's true. I, I have not heard one. And if I heard one stone singing, it doesn't mean I wouldn't want to check out another one. It's still interesting. But yeah. But anyway, that's that's his argument. He and he uh, actually points to some other examples of uh, of, of of alleged uh, stone crackling sounds that were uh, known of at various points and written about at various points in human history. So he lists uh, sounds mentioned by Charles Darwin, by um, Alexander von Humboldt, ah. yeah, by members of uh, Napoleon's uh, Commission of Egypt, uh, etc. So there are other accounts of stones making noise. That is true. Now, being a big Alexander von Humboldt fan, since I read uh, <laughs> Andrea Wolfe's excellent book about him a couple of years ago, I wanted to look up what the Alexander von Humboldt passages were. And so I found that the passage that Pedrino seems to be directly referring to is actually not von Humboldt describing something he directly saw, but he's quoting a report from some 17th century explorer named Father Acuna, who I suspect is probably the Spanish missionary explorer Cristobal Diatristan de Acuna. Uh, Acuna, I think. And so here's the section from von Humboldt's personal narrative of the travels to the equinoctial regions of America. Quote, On the north of the confluence of the Curupatuba and the Amazon, says Acuna, Uh, is the mountain Parawaxo, which, when illumined by the sun, glows with the most beautiful colors and thence from time to time issues a horrible noise. Ooh, all right. But there's more. So von Humboldt, in another section, does actually describe rocks making noises. So maybe this is what what, uh, Pedrino was obliquely referring to. So von Humboldt is narrating his journey with companions down a river in an area that I believe would now be in Venezuela. They're on the Orinoco. And von Humboldt writes the following, quote, The granitic rock or granite rock on which we lay is one of those where travelers on the Orinoco have heard from time to time towards sunrise subterraneous sounds resembling those of the organ. The missionaries call these stones laxas de musica. It is witchcraft, cosa de brujas, (laughs) said our young Indian pilot who could speak Spanish. We never ourselves heard these mysterious sounds, either at Carichina Vieja or in the Upper Orinoco, but from information given us by witnesses worthy of belief, the existence of a phenomenon that seems to depend on a certain state of the atmosphere cannot be denied. 
The shelves of rock are full of very narrow and deep crevices. They are heated during the day to 48 or 50 degrees. I several times found their temperature at the surface during the night at 28 degrees. It may easily be conceived that the difference of temperature between the subterranean and the external air attains its maximum about sunrise, or at that moment which is at the same time farthest from the period of the maximum of the heat of the preceding day. May not these organ-like sounds, which are heard when a person lays his ear in contact with the stone, be the effect of a current of air that issues out through the crevices? Does not the impulse of the air against the elastic spangles of mica that intercept the crevices contribute to modify the sounds? May we not admit that the ancient inhabitants of Egypt, in passing incessantly up and down the Nile, had made the same observation on some rock of the Thebaid, and that the music of the rocks there led to the jugglery of the priests in the statue of Mimnon. Jugglery meaning like chicanery. Ah. So I think he's he's going with the idea that there there's uh, there's a theory that the priests were doing something nefarious there to make the sound. So picking back up with von Humboldt. Perhaps when, quote, the rosy-fingered aurora rendered her son the glorious Memnon vocal, unquote, the voice was that of a man hidden beneath the pedestal of the statue. But the observation of the natives of the Orinoco, which we relate, seems to explain in a natural manner what gave rise to the Egyptian belief of a stone that poured forth sounds at sunrise. Almost at the same period at which I communicated these conjectures to some of the learned in Europe, three French travelers, Jomard, Jolois, and de Villiers, were led to analogous ideas. They heard at sunrise in a monument of granite at the center of the spot on which now stands the palace of Karnak, a noise resembling that of a string breaking. Now this comparison is precisely that which the ancients employed in speaking of the voice of Memnon. The French travelers thought, like me, that the passage of rarefied air through the fissures of a sonorous stone might have suggested to the Egyptian priests the invention of the jugglers of the Mimnomium. Uh, what, now, what I love about this passage is that it kind of has something for everybody, and uh-huh. you can you can kind of cherry pick and support any interpretation. You can say, well, von Humboldt, von Humboldt here is talking about uh, uh, tricksters at work in Memnon. That's al- one possibility. Right. Yeah. And he's also talking about natural phenomena and seems very on board with the idea that, yes, uh, stones could create a cracking noise just based on uh, the natural properties of, uh, of of the heating of the stone. Yeah. I think he doesn't fully have the, the exact mechanism figured out here either. But he says, look, we're on a big slab of granite. It's making sounds in the dawn. Mm-hmm. This other place has big blocks of stone apparently making sounds at the dawn. It could be a common natural cause. You don't necessarily have to go to the trickster priest's hypothesis. Right. Now, Pedrino is using this as an example of, look, other people were talking about cracking stones. It's no big deal. But but it kind of is. Like, yeah, Von I Humboldt mean, spent a lot of time here discussing it, and therefore it was it was clearly a, a, a matter of interest to him. Yeah, I mean, like Von Humboldt, I don't encounter a lot of spontaneously noise-making stones. Yeah, I mean, unless you count Mick Jagger, right, <laughs> who, who, who is still creating uh, noise. Yeah, yeah. We, we can't quite explain it. And is one of the greatest relics of the ancient world. <laughs> he is. So, uh, so you're probably wondering, well, okay, what is what is uh, Petarino's full uh, hypothesis here? Well, he he points out that okay, if it was a gadget, then you have to ask, well, who was capable of creating such a gadget uh, in the, at that time? And he points to Greek mathematician and engineer Heron or Hero of Alexandria. Okay, and Alexandria was a center of learning at the time, and. Uh, and and it is it is often mentioned that Hero had some ideas. To what extent he actually built these out or fabricated them is, uh, you know, is an open question. But some of his ideas uh, did resemble what would eventually become steam technology. Like he seemed to ha- be aware of the basic uh, natural processes that would uh, that were necessary for that kind of technology to exist. I don't want to deny that the achievements of Hero of Alexandria were cool, but this seems kind of like those conspiracy theories that say like something weird happened in I don't know 1920 whatever, 
you know, there was this guy, Tesla, and he did all these inventions. Maybe yeah. he was the guy behind this thing that happened somewhere in the world. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and it, it does get very conspiracy uh, theorist here shortly. So, Pedarino says, all right, Hero is the kind of guy that, or if, if not the guy who could have made the gadget. And uh, he, then he points to a few different machines that, he, that Hero was said to have built, a fountain that trickles due to the sun's heating of a, a water and air-filled globe and then sucks it back up again in the shade. And it was also said to produce a hissing sound. So Petterino claims that such a gadget could have been placed on the left knee of the statue in a still visible cavity, uh, as in it's still visible today. Uh, but he also admits that you have to keep this thing working after, uh, you know, for at least two centuries. So you have to expand the conspiracy theory a little bit. <laughs> okay. To involve priests and guardians of the temple of, uh, of Amanoff uh, III, uh, and they would have been the necessary keepers of the secret gadget. And he argues that they would be the ones that would benefit from it as well. His hypothesis takes another leap by entailing the possible murder of Hero. What? Yeah, and his accomplices in order to keep the work a secret because clearly Hero's the sort of guy who would want to make his wonder gadget known at some point. Uh, and uh, he also suggests that the priests might have silenced anyone who figured out the secret. And I feel like we're definitely getting into a conspiracy theory here because I, I'm this not— This is the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have to ask myself at the end of it, why is it more believable to think that you had to have a, like a secret cabal um, that was tending to an ancient device and keeping it running for uh, you know two or three hundred years? Why is that— a, a more easily digestible uh, explanation than, oh, well, there's this temperature differential in the stone and it's causing this slight crackle. I mean, if you want to resort to a jugglery of the priest's explanation, yet again, I think it might be a, a lot easier to just say, well, there was, I don't know, a priest hiding somewhere in uh, next to the statue or in the statue. I don't know, maybe there's a box or some reeds or something like that mm -hmm. you could hide in. And then they were just beating it with a hammer at dawn. Yeah. That that seems to fairly enough match what people are describing. It's possible people might not have noticed this. And that's easier than saying, well, there was a special type of thermal autonomous musical instrument designed by an ancient inventor hidden within the statue, maintained the secrecy uh, by, by this cabal of evil priests. Or may, maybe he's not saying they're evil, but the, of trick tricksy priests. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd go with the hammer. That's easier, right? Right. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we're having a little fun with this, but I do want to stress that uh, Pedrino's argument here, it, I think it is worth discussing just because it, it does serve as a kind of devil's advocate uh, argument against the more established interpretation of what was going on here. Yeah. And it does bring us to our, our final uh, exploration in this episode, the idea that, yeah, these devices, while I think it's unlikely uh, that one was installed at the uh, at, at the Colossi of Memnon. Uh, these gadgets are possible and uh, can exist. Yeah, in fact, they are inspiring people even in more recent years to want to create solar thermal automata that make music. Right, essentially music making robots that work by sunlight. Yeah. Uh, you found a wonderful article. This published in the Leonardo Music uh, Journal in 2007 by M.R. Duffy, uh -huh. The Vocal Memnon and Solar Thermal Automata. And uh, in this, uh, Duffy has just a nice explanation of what uh, one of these devices would entail. Yeah, the simple version is in the description of a memnonium named after memnon. Uh, that is a difficult word. I'm sure I'm going to say it wrong if I try to say it again. A memnonium, quote, is a self-actuating system that generates music using solar energy. So this is going to be based on the theory that it was the solar – it was not some jugglery of the priests, that it was the solar thermal energy – heating the stone, which caused some kind of thing to happen within it that made the breaking twang. That's right. And, uh, and, and in this article, Duffy uh, alludes again to the idea that, that Hero uh, may have uh, planned out something uh, that, uh, that, that created sound via steam expansion. Mm -hmm. uh, and he also points to an earlier Greek scientist, Tisibius, who would have lived 285 to 222 uh, BCE, uh, that was also, uh, incidentally, possibly the first head of the Library of Alexandria. Uh -huh. And he was credited with uh, designing uh, basically a solar-powered uh, mini pipe organ that was driven by siphoning water between chambers to affect air pressure. 
Right. So Duffy in the paper goes on to describe different types of solar thermal automata that could be created. There's a there's a great picture mm-hmm. of one prototype which is demonstrated at the tank in New York City in July 2003. And it's described as there, you've got three parabolic solar concentrators, so sort of like a parabolic mirror uh, that's going to reflect hot sunlight. And they're they're focused on these singing tubes that are supposed to create a chord triad. And in the photo, there's somebody working on positioning them with some heavy eye protection in place because (laughs) obviously these things would be a little bit dangerous. I have to say that none of the memnonium devices depicted in here really strike me as a very... uh, you know, easily easily hidden object. They look a bit uh, obnoxious in their presentation. Like it would be very hard, I would think, to just tuck it away in a statue. Yeah, I, I like the idea of memnonium as described uh, by by the paper, but it doesn't exactly match because one of the things about the Colossi of Memnon is they say it happened at dawn. Right. right? And then they don't say like, and then it happened all day after that. Mm -hmm. So you'd have to make a very special thing that it's not just like whenever there's sunlight, it's heating a certain device and that causes steam to rise and whatever. It would have to be only sunlight at a very specific angle or very specific uh, thermal differential like right when the sun rises or something. Huh. Do you think that this – the story of uh, the Colossi of Memnon at all inspired the scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where uh, he uses the the amulet uh, to uh, illuminate the map? I didn't think about that. But it does make a sound, doesn't it? When the the sunlight goes through the amulet and it's focused down on the ground, it makes a kind of – a uh, steaming kettle kind of sound. Oh man, I am I am way overdue for a, 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 another viewing of Raiders of the Lost Ark, especially if we end up doing an episode on the Ark of the Covenant. Oh yeah. yeah, another uh, weird conspiracy theory about ancient technology. <laughs> yeah, though though a pretty interesting one. Yeah, you know, the one the thing I love about about all these different uh, tangents to the Colossi of Memnon is that it does kind of come back around to this. Ozymandias principle, right? Mm-hmm. The idea that you have some epic work of, uh, that, that humanity has wrought and it just does not last. And, uh, and it applies certainly to the statues themselves, to the, the kingdom that they emerge from. Mm-hmm. It applies to this phenomenon that occurs with the sound. And it also applies to any kind of device one might build to produce such a sound. I think it should give us another avenue of perspective on the idea of restorations. Yeah. I mean, there's always a question when you've got some kind of landmark of ancient significance that has deteriorated. Should you do a restoration on it? Should you try to make it more like it used to be or should you just let it be as it is? Uh, There are different schools of thought about that, right? But here we have one great example of where it looks like what happened is a restoration killed the most interesting thing Mm -hmm. about this great work of ancient art. Yeah, I I think we've all seen examples of of works of of ancient or older art that once they've been restored – on one hand, it's great because now, you know, conceivably we can we can learn much more about the the painting uh, or the sculpture uh, that we can uh, we can perhaps appreciate it in new ways. Mm-hmm. But there's also sometimes this this effect where you look at it and it looks kind of fake. It doesn't look like the same piece. Yeah. It does not. It, it doesn't have the same um, aura of 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 time as it used to. I personally like the idea of replication as opposed to restoration. I mean, I'm not always opposed to restoration. Mm-hmm. There are some cases where it makes sense, especially if you need to uh, protect an artifact from rapidly deteriorating further that's right. in some condition where it's, you know, mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Uh, but in a, in a situation where it's not like that, I, I like the idea of leaving it as it is in its presently deteriorated state, but then also creating in a different place a replica of what it would have been in its original state. The Parthenon uh, of Greece is probably a great example of this because the Parthenon as it stands now is, of course, in in ruins. And the Mm -hmm. history of the Parthenon is a story of destruction and looting and, of course, just, you know, things getting old and to varying extents falling apart, but but, but mostly destruction and looting. Uh, So there have been – you know, efforts. Uh, there have been uh, individuals who said, "Well, let us restore it to its former glory." But if you if you do that, you're you're kind of erasing the past. Uh, so it does seem like it's a better idea to 
keep things as in some cases it seems like it's a better idea to keep things as they exist, keep the ruins as they exist, mm-hmm. but maybe just build a replica, I don't know, in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> See how it goes. Hey, that Nashville Parthenon ain't bad. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I, I recommend it if you're if you find yourself in Nashville. Personally, I think in Tennessee we should have more great monuments to human sacrifice. <laughs> uh, well, arguably yes, arguably yes. All right, so there you have it, the Colossi of Memnon. Hopefully we've, uh, we, we've managed to take everyone um, on a journey across millennia <laughs> explaining why this, uh, this place, why these ruins are significant and, uh, and why they're worth talking about here on Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It is fascinating. I'm sorry we, we, we don't have an answer for you on exactly what caused the sound, but, uh, but it's something to ponder. I think we can leave here, though, fairly confident that, uh, that it's the, the heat model, the, the heat explanation, yeah. and not some sort of ancient gadget that was placed by, uh, by a secret cultist. Unless there was also a jugglery of priests to uh, maintain such a hoax along the rocks on the shores of the Orinoco. It's a, it's a global conspiracy. That's the thing, right? <laughs> All right, if you want to explore more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, uh, as well as blog posts and links out to our various social media accounts, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is the mothership. That's where it all originates. And uh, I should also uh, throw out there, hey, if you want to help support the show, uh, rate and review us wherever you have the ability to do that. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly to let us know your thoughts about this episode or any other or to uh, suggest a topic for a future episode or just to say hi, let us know what you think of the show, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Thank you.